1: This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we've got the final of our Hughes Brothers series with their 2010 film, The Book of Eli. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com or subscribe to the show in your very favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter and Facebook
0: at The Next Reel. Uh, and we've got a Blotspot friend of the
1: show, Ben Lott, has written in with his rebound on From Hell.
0: That's right. Thank you guys for saying all that I thought while watching From Hell. I felt it was a brilliant premise, but sadly it was deeply flawed in the choices they made. It has some good qualities, but the mystery wasn't one of them, because I figured out it out very early. At least now I know where Johnny Depp started practicing for Captain Jack Sparrow, because his performance of Aberlene was almost identical. Your rank 242, my rank 177. Hey, you liked it even more. Fancy that. I actually still enjoyed it, and it stuck pretty well in my head. I think despite some of its issues, I did enjoy it, and I'm still plowing through the graphic novel again, which I'm, I'm quite enjoying. Quite a bit.
1: Well, I I haven't done the graphic novel, but I'll tell you after watching this week's film. Last week's film absolutely was washed away, so uh, <laughs> it did not did not hold up as well for me. We've got some more follow up. Uh, a, a friend of the show, Johan Weilander, has written in, uh, and boy, did did Johan ever write in. <laughs> uh, we've got an epic tome, and this is a response to our, uh, uh, our viewing of The Emigrants, our listener's choice film uh, from a few weeks back. Uh, We got a couple of passages. This is a great email, first of all, uh, Johan. Thank you so much for writing this. A couple of passages I want to highlight here. I I think the first one is uh, on Jan Troll as a, as a, a filmmaker. The Flight of the Eagle is, in my opinion, he says, Troll's best film and was nominated for an Academy Award Best Foreign Language Film. It's a period piece about a real event where three explorers tried to journey to the North Pole by balloon and they disappeared. The truth about what happened wasn't discovered until 30 years later when the remnants of the expedition was found on White Island. Von Sydow is back again and is excellent in this one. There are a lot of other films I could mention, but apart from the emigrant duo, these three are my favorites. Jan Troll is really a total filmmaker, handling both photography and editing and a lot of other things, and somewhat unfairly has stood in the shadow of Ingmar Bergman, but he has never lost touch with his typical sense of warmth. And the photography is always great. As you say, it has a lot of connection to the work of
0: Terrence Malick. Very true, very true. I did find that quite a bit, and I I I really enjoyed watching the emigrants. And I certainly uh the, the flight of the eagle sounds like a really interesting film. He's a director that uh, I would be happy to watch more of. I
1: think so too. Uh, this total filmmaker comment is is intriguing to me, and it's one that's kind of stuck in my head.
0: We also talked about uh, the actor Hans Alfredson, who was in the film, and uh, how he was in the variety duo Hassa and Tog in the '60s. It was a a, a comedy duo, and he he, uh Johan suggests, I would recommend you look up the comedies Docking the Boat from 1965 and The Adventures of Picasso, 1978, if you would like to see a Hassan Tagg film, the first one also starring Monica Zitterland, who we had talked about. But unfortunately, these films are a bit too Swedish to be comprehensible. The scripts carry too, much, too many jokes that wouldn't translate very well. Um, it's interesting that he says that the uh, the actor from The Adventures of Picasso actually just passed away and Martin Tilkvist uh tweeted us about that um his name I believe was Gösta Ekman who passed away on Friday. So RIP Gösta and you know I tried to uh check out The Adventures of Picasso but it's I I couldn't find it over here. I don't think it's available over here in the States which is too bad but maybe it is too swedish <laughs> You're right
1: it's too <laughs> swedish to be comprehensible which is now the that my sort of general retort when things are too hard for me <laughs> thank you to our friends uh, uh for writing in uh, we sure appreciate it this is great sure. stuff uh, and now andy it's time let's do trailers <laughs> Band rule. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, you win this round.
0: That's right. So my trailer this week, Pete, is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. A, uh, a little beefy uh, title for the film that uh, Martin McDonough is doing. Uh, he's back in the saddle. This is Martin McDonough, who won an Oscar for his short film that he did back in, I think it was 2004. Uh, and then he went on to do In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. And now he's got his new film that he's written and directed, uh, again, called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And it looks frickin' fantastic. We have Frances McDormand as the mother of a girl who had been killed. And she uh, kind of uh, gets upset that the sheriff, uh, Willoughby, played by Woody Harrelson, hasn't caught the killer. And so she, uh, she gets three billboards and she puts up... Uh, commentary about his lack of action on them, and it creates quite the uproar in the community. Um, The film just looks fantastic. Frances McDormand, what a force. Again, just proving how incredible of an actress she is and how funny and how... (laughs) How darkly funny she can be. I mean, she looks fantastic in the trailer. And then you have Peter Dinklage and Sam Rockwell. And of course, I already mentioned Woody Harrelson and Abby Cornish is in there and uh, Lucas Hedges uh, and John Hawkes, one of our favorites, uh, just tons of people. It's a, it's a great cast with a really interesting looking story about a mom who is um, kind of taking things into her own hands to, uh, to get some action done and find the, the killer of her daughter. It Looks fantastic, and I just cannot wait for this one. What did you think?
1: Oh, are you kidding me? It was fantastic, and I, I hadn't watched the trailer until just before we recorded. I knew You told me you were doing it days ago, and I thought, well, I'll put that on my list of things to think about. I am blown away. I can't believe that I missed this trailer the first time around. It looks great. It has that same sort of vibe... Uh, that that seven psychopaths vibe uh that uh i i really enjoy and um in bruges obviously was another one that was a, a big favorite i think uh, martin mcdonough is terrific and i this the whole uh the whole aesthetic of this film to take something that is really so dark and uh make it such a um uh allow francis McDormand to make it such a, a dark comedy i think is um uh, is terrific uh, it's what a wonderful uh thrilling kind of mystery. I think it's going to be fantastic.
0: I wish I had a release date for you. Right now, it's just listed as 2017, but uh, hopefully we'll have more information on that down the road.
1: My trailer, Andy, is The Book of Henry. Uh, This is a new film from director Colin Trevorrow, writer Greg Hurwitz, stars uh, Lee Pace, Naomi Watts, Jacob Tremblay, Sarah Silverman, and uh, Dean Norris. Uh, Wow. So Jacob Tremblay, obviously, room. Uh, the boy from Room, which was terrific. We've talked about that on this very show. Uh, who knew that the next movie he would end up doing would be another strong mother-son film? This is a story <laughs> of a single mother, uh, Naomi Watts, who is raising a child genius. Uh, this young man takes care of of her every need from uh, keeping her schedule straight to doing her taxes and uh, he's very, very bright. And I thought it was going to be just that. I thought that was going to be the movie. You know what I mean? I thought that oh, yeah. was the whole thing. It was going to be a feel-good thing about a mother son. Wouldn't that be great? And then it turns, and it turns into something fascinating, uh, where uh, Henry ends up being uh, the the mastermind behind a uh, you know unraveling a crime using his mother as his the vessel of his actions. And I thought from that point forward i was bought in hook line and sinker what did you think
0: yeah it it really does take that uh that interesting turn where she kind of starts working uh as a partner with her son to solve this uh this potential uh crime you know this this father next door abusing his stepdaughter and it looks really interesting. And, you know, of course, Dean Norris is uh, always creepy playing characters like that. Um, I, I thought he looked great as the, as the neighbor next door. And, um, yeah, and then it's got Naomi Watts and these kids. It, it looked really fascinating. So I, I agree that twist in the trailer really kind of uh, surprised me and, and really kind of got me to say, yes, I want to check this one out. And I think that not. you had to pick this one just because of the title. I did. So, so I well totally did. <laughs>
1: That's exactly why I did it, Andy. I'm glad you find me so transparent. Uh, obviously, uh, director Colin Trevorrow, we've talked about him before uh, on Jurassic World. Uh, he is writer-director behind the upcoming Star Wars Episode nine. Uh And um, uh, there's there's uh, some good stuff that, that he has done. Even though some of us didn't like Jurassic World as much, Safety Not Guaranteed was terrific. Uh, Greg Hurwitz is uh, the uh, writer behind... Uh, the film, and he is—he's not known for as much, but he wrote a lot and uh, produced a lot of V, the reboot reboot of the uh, the uh, Alien Invasion series, uh, and uh, Black Flags. I never actually saw miniseries, uh, pirate thing. So anyway, uh, should be interesting. Release date for the Book of Henry right now. All I've got is USA, June sixteenth, twenty seventeen. It's a summer one, so uh, uh, mark it down. should be interesting. Excellent. They say the war tore a hole in the sky, Andy. You've probably heard the stories. Thirty
0: winters ago, the war
1: tore a hole in the sky. Only a few survived. Our only hope is in my hands. Take off the pack, nice and slow. Put that hand on me again, you won't get it back. <laughs> Cursed be the ground for our sake. For out of the ground we were taken,
0: and to the dust we shall return. I told you you weren't gonna get that back.
1: The Book of Eli, Andrew, 2010, from our friends the Hughes Bros. Script by Gary Whitta directed by Albert and Alan, Uh, stars Denzel, Gary Oldman, Mila Mila Kunis, Mila Kunis, Mila Kunis, Uh, Malcolm McDowell, Ray Stevenson, Evan Jones, Jennifer Beals, and of course, Tom Waits as engineer. Uh, what'd you think after, uh, following this up off of, of, from hell, what did you think of the book of Eli, our post-apocalyptic entry into Denzel's canon?
0: I find this a really interesting film to watch. I wouldn't say it's a film I love. Um, I think there are a lot of interesting things going on in it and I certainly have a lot of problems with it. Um, but I, I found it a very enjoyable watch. You know, I think that's, uh, I think that's probably the, uh, the thing that I really took away from it this time is, um... Even if I have issues with it and, uh, and don't know how often I'd revisit it, it sure is fun to watch.
1: You know, I, I don't think I have a lot of problems with it, but the problems that I have feel significant. And and they they take me out of the film. You know what I mean? Um, the, the thing that I do love about this film, and I want to start there, um, it it's because we we sort of locked into this conversation around From Hell that the the Hughes brothers wanted to get away from making black movies, you know what I mean? Uh that that they were doing something different. It wasn't a, a menace to society style kind of gang film. And I had a problem with From Hell. Uh, but and and I think that problem sometimes gets misattributed. Those other critics who have a problem with From Hell misattributed to, gosh, the Hughes brothers should just stick to making uh, films they know best. Stick to the gang films, right? Th- those are the stories they know how to tell. They should tell those stories. And uh, that was not my problem. The problem was for me, From Hell wasn't a story that I, I think they connected with well enough to to make a complete film. I had a problem with it, uh, and and it it felt very much at the center of of kind of their aesthetic sensibilities. This film, I absolutely don't have that problem. This is not a black film. This is a great-looking, post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, road movie, and I, I find it really interesting to look at. From the very first shot, which we'll talk about, I, I'm, I'm taken in by the camera, by the treatment of the film, and and I, I find it really engaging. Uh, I actually really love Denzel's character in it, but it that doesn't necessarily it's it's not a film that is about black experience. It's about this rogue uh, traveler and and it's a, a mantle he carries, I think, very well. Uh, so there's a there's a lot in the the sort of DNA in the film that that I think really works for me. What, what you, what's your take?
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right with all of that. And, and when I say problems with it, it really really comes down to really one key thing that I have an issue with um, that makes it a much more difficult film to uh, to buy into. But I think you're right. It is an incredible vision. I love that they create this post apocalyptic world and they stick to it the whole time. It always has the same bleak just Washed out dead look through the whole film. It's just, it's, it's so. Uh, just beautiful in its ugliness. I, I love that they kind of kept with that the whole time. I think that the Hughes brothers definitely have proven themselves as just filmmakers, not black filmmakers, but just filmmakers who know how to tell a really compelling story and make a really interesting film. Um, they're definitely a pair of filmmakers that I wish were doing a lot more because they just don't do a whole lot. But, it, you know, cranking out films like this, I mean, they have a story to tell and I think that they are really good at telling it. So I definitely agree with you there.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, speaking of the look of the film, when you look at the production stills, the, the behind the scenes stuff, uh, the untreated stills out of camera of the uh, of the shoot, uh, it is wonderful and stunning just how much treatment they apply to the film to get the look of it. Um, it is um, it, it's it's. Blows me away at, at just how you know clean and clear and colorful and rich the the environment is that they're shooting in. Uh, you know, it's 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 one of those magic of filmmaking moments that I I get totally lost from the very opening shot uh, in in the look of it that they created. I think it's really powerful. Um, uh, Gary Witta wrote the script. Um, I don't know. Is it, <laughs> are the problems that we have with this film script problems?
0: Uh, it, it is a, I I don't know. I'm, I'm torn with it. I mean, I guess, you know, I'll just come out and say it. My biggest issue is the fact that, uh, I struggle buying into the fact that Eli is blind. He's not blind. It's He's not blind. (laughs) It's just, it doesn't, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I, and it feels like they didn't even want him to be totally, to be blind. Well, and I, I I can't quite figure it out because I I mean the first time I saw it obviously I didn't know that and then the reveal happens at the ending and it's like oh okay I, I wonder if it worked because I didn't feel like he was blind yeah. and then this time rewatching it knowing that. There are so many things that he's doing throughout that I just don't buy into. And yes, they do a few things like he bumps into a a small, a, like a low uh, end table. And when he's kind of moving his hands around on a shelf trying to find stuff, you know, it's the way, he, the way he's doing it is, I guess you could say, the way a blind person would be doing it. But through so much of the film, he's acting like Daredevil. And, you know, he's just like got these incredible superhuman senses and can pinpoint anything that's happening within the room. And I just struggle so much with it. Plus, he takes his glasses off uh, for large portions of the film, and his eyes just never seem uh, like they're blind. And so it's a real struggle. That is a real <laughs> struggle I have with this yeah. film. And that – is it. Is it a script problem? Is it a direction problem? Like if they had actually directed it where uh, Denzel never took his sunglasses off, uh, would I have been able to buy into it better? Probably. I don't know if it would have been completely convincing. But, you know, I don't know. I'm torn if that's actually a script problem or just a a problem of direction or performance.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you, and this that's the one that I I have trouble kind of pinning down, because otherwise I think Denzel's performance is terrific, and yeah. I think that, uh, you know, my, my hunch is you don't need the blind thing, you know what I mean? Like, you don't need to sell it as, uh, you know, to do the big reveal that he's blind. The The reveal could be enough that he was carrying around a Bible in his head, and that, it, you know, that, that was fine. So whatever you think of that point, which I have problems with that too, um, but... That could have been enough. I, I don't think we needed it. I think it's a um, it, it's a poorly executed trick, uh, and and because of its execution in in performance, it it's kind of a boat anchor on the end of the film.
0: My other issue that I have with the film is I I weirdly find it. I, I don't know if I should say anticlimactic or. Or uh, like it's a little bit of a uh, false finish. Uh, You know, it it just we get this huge climax at the at the house of the um, the cannibals, the cannibal couple, which is a fantastic scene. I absolutely love it. Uh, But then and and Eli gets shot and they take uh, Solara, and uh, then Solara escapes and goes back and they say it's not worth our gas. We don't have enough. And they head back to their place. That essentially is the climax of the film. And it doesn't feel like that should have been the climax of the film, right? Because then, you know, then he he's not quite dead. He's been shot, but he's not quite dead. Uh, very Monty Python-esque. And so she takes him all the way out to Alcatraz and, and the whole ending is revealed and stuff. But it feels like there should have been a lo- another climax. Like, it didn't feel like we had hit the climax of the film. And so I, I feel like that's a script issue where uh, the way that they built that climax just felt early to me. And it just feels like they kind of climax the film at the end of act two. And then act three is just this, um, this, you know, journey to get to Alcatraz that has no real, uh, climax, just a twist.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right with you. It feels like they sort of bumped their head on the end of the film. Uh, like they, they weren't quite ready for it. And, um, and and the uh, this is one of those examples though where I think the Alcatraz journey as the ultimate goal of the film is a good one. Like I I find that a, a rich kind of reveal that this is where we're gonna we're gonna start rebuilding civilization in a place that comes from such darkness. Right? I mean, it, it, oh, yeah. it's it's really horrible. I I really get that, but there's something in the pacing between Act Two and Act Three that that gets lost, and and I'm not entirely sure. Uh, what that is, I've you know. Now that I've watched the film a couple more times, I it it's it just really falls off a cliff right after that wonderful uh, single shot. You know, effect scene, and um, and and you're right. I, I have a real problem with it. I also have a problem with the the Mila Kunis pivot. You know, I mean, at the end of the film, as she's wandering off into the desert, um, you know, I'm I'm not sure that's a story that needs to be left hanging there. Uh, for, for me, her taking up the mantle of the wanderer uh, as the archetype that that's one that that as a result of the third act kind of complications that that stands out to me as a as a kind of confusing element.
0: Jumping forward in our conversation to first shot, last shot, um, I think that it absolutely doesn't—it it kind of gums up the the anything that they could have done thematically, tying the first and last shots together. Uh, the first shot is really um, this—I mean, it's a really interesting long tracking shot along the ground. You're going through this dead forest. You see a gun, a dead body, this Mr. Bigglesworth cat <laughs> <kind of laughs> going to eat the dead body. And then it's revealed that Eli's in the background with an arrow and he's hunting Mr. Bigglesworth. And, uh... And- well, you you kind of already brought up the last shot, but uh do you want to describe it better?
1: Well, yeah, no, uh, Solara has officially kind of taken up the mantle. She's got the glasses, she's got the iPod, she's got the beats uh earbuds and she's walking on the highway fading off into the blazing sun. And and it's actually a beautiful shot, but I think you're right, thematically it doesn't really tie in.
0: No, especially because it's like this this I mean the first shot's really setting up this world and, and Eli's world and everything going on here. And it really felt like the end of it should have been his story. It should have been, you know, I thought it would have worked well just, just seeing him laying there and just like fading to white, almost like, you know, he's kind of uh, passed this life and has, has moved on. He's succeeded in his mission, brought the Bible to these people, and uh, and now is has, you know, absolved himself of any sins or whatever, cleansed himself, what, however you want to say it. It just feels like, you know, that part of the journey is complete. The Solara bit, passing it off to her, it's like, yeah, I agree with you. Like, what's the point of that? How does that yeah. tie into anything? I mean, the journey's continuing. Why? What's what's her mission now? It doesn't... All of a sudden, it's just like, okay, but what? Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really think it worked at all, especially because the whole idea is rebuilding society with these books and everything, what is her journey doing about that rebuilding?
1: And, and that's it. I mean, you you know, whereas, as you said, the first shot is setting up the world for us uh, with with regard to Denzel and his story, the last shot is setting up a new world for us. It, it doesn't look the same. It's hot. It's not cold. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it leads off in presumably a different direction because they made it as far as you can go west. Now she just turns around and is going back. Right? It, right even symbolically the change in direction just doesn't hold up it, it it's it provides you know greater cognitive dissonance than anything else yeah absolutely yeah you know, i don't want to let go of one script thing that you know we've already kind of spoiled that it. it was the bible and this is the thing that i have a problem with uh in the script that they they anchored the entire story around the fact that there is this that they can't find any bibles uh that all the bibles have been burned and and you know they they did Make a point that that all the books were burned, and that the bibles were to go and that they they needed to uh, and now they're you know the the Carnegie's you know entire mission is to is to find a bible uh it is Eli's job he has this bible he is it, it, it's his sworn kind of journey to get the Bible to the west, and I just could not help thinking in the first sequence where Martz brings in his his first bounty of books and throws all these books on the desk in front of Carnegie. And some of the books include things like uh, The Diary of Anne Frank, which has sold millions and millions and millions, or tens of millions of copies. In fact, 30 million copies The Diary of Anne Frank has has found. Now, 30 years later, after the apocalypse, uh, they're able to find a Diary of Anne Frank and throw it down on the desk. Uh, which you know, arguably, is symbolic in its own right, right? Anne Frank's kind of testimony, um, you know, throughout the war uh, is is I think symbolic. Of being on the desk in the first place, the Bible they can't find. The Bible they can't find. It's in every de- every bedside table drawer of every hotel, uh, you know, in the world, <laughs> in the Christian speaking you know world, and they can't find a Bible. You know how many Bibles, Andy? Five billion Bibles have been printed, five billion Bibles. They have Anne Frank on Carnegie's desk, and they can't find one in five billion Bibles at a Holiday Inn on the side of the road somewhere. I find that so ridiculously hard to believe, and I know, I know I'm nitpicking that, but it's one of those that got stuck in my craw so early as I'm researching uh, publication records of these books (laughs) while watching this movie, and I got completely locked up in it. I, um, I, you know, I get it. But I got I got tied up in it.
0: Well, and it is one of those things. I mean, you have to buy into the conceit of that in the story to to make it work. And and you're right. It's like, uh, I mean, it's a relatively Christian country, and a you know, there's a lot of Christians around the world. You'd think that if everybody started burning books, that there would be you know at least a few people who hid yeah. their Bibles somewhere. You know they they right. would be uh, they would be keeping them. Um, and the it,
1: only Bible they find is covered in locks, right? <laughs> like it's in Braille. The only right. The Bible they have is is Braille and it's leather clad and covered in and, and locked up. I I just I, I found that hard to believe. And and the problem with it is that. I allow myself to buy into so many other areas of the film that are otherwise, right, fantastical, right? I can get over, um, you know, uh, uh, more of those issues. But these little, little conceits as the foundation of the entire sort of journey of the narrative, that's where I, I had trouble.
0: What's interesting about it is Gary Whitta wrote this script in two thousand and seven, and it was on the blacklist. We've talked about the blacklist a number of times. It's a list that kind of floats around Hollywood of like the hottest scripts of the year that have still not been produced, and it was on the list in two thousand and seven. Uh, and usually, what happens when a script ends up on the two thousand or on, on the blacklist is, is they will get kind of picked up uh, relatively quickly, and that that is what happened here. And and I think that. On the page, this is a really interesting read. I can imagine why Gary uh, would um, uh, was able to find a distributor for it after getting on there because I the conceit of it is a really fascinating world, right. I mean it's it's really interesting what they've developed here and um, and this this world that he's painted. But yes, you're right. There are elements within it that I think when it comes down to actually making making it, Uh, might not completely hold up as well as they uh, perhaps did on the page when you don't have to think about it quite as much.
1: I wonder, Andy, how many Bibles—I mean, we know five billion Bibles are produced—I wonder how many KFC moist toilets uh, have been produced made. Do you think it's crusted <laughs> right? five billion? That was actually a really fun element. I loved I loved seeing him wash himself. Is that weird? Man, I love Denzel washing himself with a moist toilet.
0: <laughs> you perv. No, I agree. <laughs> I, I think that the the, the again this world building that they do here is just so brilliant. Bathing yourself with whatever you can find, like a moist towel lat from KFC. And then the barter system that ties into that. When we see him show up at the engineer's place to try to get uh, his battery recharged, and this bartering turns into, I've got this, I've got this, and just like all the things that he's kind of found. It's just, it's a fascinating uh, kind of a a future look at kind of a post-apocalyptic world when money doesn't matter and, and people are just trading things that are useful. I thought that was just absolutely awesome.
1: And they get away with some really fun kind of uh, bits of anachronism, right? I mean, the Beats headphones that he's using, the the branded Beats are all sort of destroyed. And those, those Beats, I mean, Beats just formed in 2008. So the Beats he's using probably were just released, like brand new products. And here we are uh he's still using them 30 years later same thing with that old touchscreen iPod um which uh, you know the touch sensitive the capacitive button iPod which uh was one of the worst <laughs> in terms of <laughs> of iPods and it's still kicking away uh i, I thought in terms of you know branded uh, you know product placement that worked really really well i thought it was super fun to to see them um you know age some of those products you had a comment about the rape scene uh the save the cat rape scene sort of
0: well it's it was an interesting script element because you have this moment where uh where eli comes across uh, a couple who get attacked by some of uh carnegie's men and now granted he's on the top of a of a freeway that is crumbled and uh, and really has no quick way down to them. I mean, he'd have to go all the way back and down and it would take for a long take a long time. But still, he he stops up there and he has this moment where he's like, stay the path. Um, like he's not able to interfere with this situation because he has a very specific job that he has to do. Um, so they set it up and it's just like it's really interesting that uh, that he is this guy who will not go and help these people who are getting attacked and 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 raped and killed. Um, uh, And so in the world of Save the Cat, for our protagonist, it's just kind of strange that, you know, he doesn't do it. And so it's like, it, it almost makes us like him a little bit less. Um, and, and I should just comment, weirdly, that the very first thing we see him do is kill a cat. So
1: Yeah, right. Literally. So they're pretty obviously saying, hey, he's not going to
0: save the cat in this film.
1: <laughs> he's going to then but, eat the cat right, and then, gonna and gonna then <laughs> cultivate the cat's oil and right. uh, put it on his lips. So that's the guy.
0: Oh, That's him. But it is. um, But then the interesting thing is in the in the way the script is constructed, he then ends up in the bar at this little town at Carnegie's town. And, um, and these guys come in who had um, had raped and pillaged. And, um, and he confronts them and ends up kind of taking them down. Now granted, they kind of attack him first. But he ends up kind of killing them all. And he says that I know what you did and all this sort of stuff. And you know, it's just one of those odd script construction moments where it's like he doesn't save the cat um, when he could have, but they they, but he's allowed to do it later when he's at the bar. instead of, Again, staying on the path, ignoring these people and just kind of getting out of town as soon as he has the opportunity. But this is kind of the way that the plot needs to work so that he can end up kind of having a moment with Carnegie and end up getting kind of really kind of getting the plot progressing. So it's it's kind of a frustrating moment because I'm like, OK, if he's going to do it anyway, why wouldn't he do it? out there on the highway. And, in, and the more I look at it, the more it really just kind of falls down as just obvious plot construction that, I, I don't know, he doesn't stay the path. So I, I end up having trouble with it.
1: Okay, devil's advocate that uh, he is in that bar. We're talking about when when Martz approaches him and says, you poked my cat, right?
0: Absolutely, more, more okay. <laughs> cat abuse.
1: <laughs> yeah, more cat abuse. Poke the cat, save the cat, eat the cat. So uh, my sense is, that had Martz not been persistent, that Eli would have uh, would have not pursued that fight. I watched that sequence a couple of times with that in mind. That you know, it was it was Martz who was pushing those buttons, and it was Eli who finally could not stay out of that particular fight any longer. And so. I bought into it as a sense of uh, here are, here's the, you know, Witta and the Hughes brothers trying to set the stage for Eli having a set of rules that is not bound by uh, by a a particular generalized moral right or wrong, but more about the journey that he, protecting the journey that he's on. And those rules are, might be a little different. That's why he's, while he's driven, you know, you can tell he's struggling. He wants to go save the people on the road in in the rape scene he can't because he's on that journey he wants to fight marts but he because he knows what happened but he's trying not to because he needs to protect the integrity of his journey what do you think of that case
0: i actually think that's a very valid case and i think it it makes perfect sense and i, I kind of agree with it um i think that um that very much makes it all work better. So, so thank you for that.
1: I live to serve. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's let's run through. Uh, or do we want to talk about Hughes Brothers anymore specifically?
0: I, I just feel like again we talked about uh, their direction and, and really kind of creating compelling storytelling. I think that they, uh, for a film like this though, they show they really know how to handle action and do some interesting and exciting uh, construction of their fight sequences. I. Thought they uh, they really pulled it off nicely every single time.
1: Oh, the the opening fight, uh, the the silhouette fight under the overpass, and there's an example. You can tell they're kind of leading us along the Eli's blind thing. On second viewing, when he backs into the shadow, that's a that that right. to me telegraphs that you know, here it is. We're gonna put our hero. You know, we know that the guys, when they chase him, they're not gonna be able to see. That's one where you know, you could make the case that it works. I still don't think it works because you know, whatever. <laughs> but the fight itself, that one shot fight, the silhouette is one of the most fantastic, straight up single shot action sequences. Um,
0: you know, I've seen recently, it's just. Great. Well, and they really did that a lot with the fight sequences is they tried to do it where it wasn't cut, 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 cut. They tried to keep it as, as uh, with the camera going as long as they could. And, and when you're in the bar and you've got the camera just kind of like spinning around the action and which mm-hmm. was really fascinating. And then you get this incredible three minute shot at the cannibal house, which is going in and out of the house. I mean, obviously, it's it's all shot uh, with many shots and all kind of stitched together, but they do it really well. I thought as you're kind of flying through the walls and into the house and out back the wall and down to the people out in front and just kind of back and forth. And you're seeing this whole thing taking place. Um, really exciting stuff. And uh, they handled it just extremely well.
1: Well, and isn't that a testament to, you know, uh, different ways to shoot action that don't include, let's just hold the camera and get real close. Uh, you know, um, I when, you're, when you have really creative ways of approaching the scene, I think it, it worked particularly well. Absolutely. Casting by Mindy Marin of Casting Artists Sync, and uh she's she's got us uh Denzel and
0: uh we uh, he he pulls his weight. He does. And uh you know what you said about him earlier about just carrying this film so well, I completely agree. He does it He's he's just a rock solid actor. I mean, we've talked about him on the show, show before. He's always exciting to watch. He does a great job as this character, and uh, you can really see his inner struggle that he's that he's carrying with this journey that he's taking. Um, aside from the bit about being blind, I, I think he's just rock solid. I mean, he did all of his own stunts in all the hand to hand fight sequences, having studied under uh, Bruce Lee's protege Dan Inosanto. Um, lost a bunch of weight to prepare for this role. I, I mean, he really just uh, did a great performance here, and I really enjoy him as this character of Eli, a really interesting character in in uh, you know his body of characters that he's played.
1: You know, uh, Dan Inosanto. We've I don't remember if we actually mentioned him by name on the show before, but we have talked about him about one of his films before. Do you remember
0: that film, Andy? Don't peek. Oh, I was gonna I was gonna go peek. Yeah, I know you were. Well, I know what it is now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> cheat. Uh, he actually choreographed the knife fight in Red Belt, uh, which was part of our David
0: Mamet series.
1: And uh, I, I love that film.
0: I don't even remember a knife fight in that film. <laughs> says a lot. Sorry. Betrayer. Betrayer. Uh, he was oh, the dear. professor also in Red Belt. Yes, played the professor. Yeah. That's true, and he uh, was Wing Kong Hatchet Man in Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> yes, he was.
1: Gary Oldman is Carnegie, and uh, oh yes, he, he is. Yo, oh, he's you know Gary Oldman. You, when you corner the market of crazy villain, you just own it.
0: Gary Oldman he's, owns it. <laughs> he's almost channeling his uh, character from uh, uh, Leon. Yes, he is.
1: <laughs> Not quite, but he's pretty close. Well, from the professional from the fifth element, I mean, come on.
0: Uh but really, I mean, Gary Oldman is just fun to watch. And and he's he's a really interesting bad guy. You know, he's got this interesting setup with with Jennifer Beals as his kind of uh at first it kind of seems like maybe his wife, but then it, you realize that no, she's kind of his slave. <laughs> yeah. Like, Wow, things just got dark. I thought he was a little bit nicer than he really is. He's Ugh. not
1: nice. He is not a nice no, person.
0: Not nice, not
1: nice. But super crazy uh, and uh and and actually interestingly, I think his performance here is is paced well, arguably paced better than some of his other ones where he starts out as you know, the the man on a mission angle of his character of Carnegie is is I think um you know, really apparent and not just He's not just nuts. Um that that he has he has a mission and I, I think he performs that uh, he performs that well given the context of the film. If you buy into the worldview, I think you're going to buy into Carnegie.
0: And you know, jumping jumping forward in our cast a little bit, but Redridge, uh, played by Ray Stevenson, is his uh, kind of head thug. And I've got to say, I thought that there was a really interesting uh, relationship between the two of these guys. That Redridge wasn't just the thug for for Carnegie. He actually. Was a a, a kind of a a thug that seemed to have opinions about what uh, Carnegie was doing and decisions that he was making and really kind of seemed to not like uh, what Carnegie was doing sometimes and sometimes would say that. And it's like this is actually a much more interesting relationship between the head guy and his uh, his main thug than we normally see. And I really appreciated that Ray Stevenson's character was actually given some stuff to do in this film. so that's just a little a little side note there.
1: I agree with that. And he has been in uh, a lot of stuff. Um, this uh, Ray Stevenson uh, coming up. Uh, he's in Thor Ragnarok as Volstag, so we'll see him again. Uh, very soon this year, although he's got a bunch of other stuff coming up too.
0: And he's been Volstagg in the other films yeah, too. He's, right. he's He's been kind of a Thor regular.
1: He's Marcus in the uh, Divergent series, um, and uh, and he was Blackbeard in Black sails, the TV series, which I never watched. Did you watch that?
0: I didn't. No, I missed that uh, one.
1: I, we should talk about Jennifer Beals. I think, um, though she she doesn't have. You mentioned already that she, um, you know, she's kind of the slave. She also. Uh, Plays blind well.
0: Right. In a a film with uh, two blind people, she's the one who actually convincingly acts blind. (laughs) I I was like, okay, that's how a blind person should be acting. And the scene, you know, watching it uh, a second time when Eli is is in the room and Claudia comes to see him, I had a real hard time (laughs) watching Eli... Trying to believe he was blind when I so convincingly was believing that Claudia was blind. It was, uh, that made it all the more difficult. <laughs> yeah, right. That's
1: probably the worst. That is the worst <laughs> sequence in the film. Um, right. <laughs> but she was otherwise great. She's been with Denzel before. We've, uh, we've never talked about Devil in a Blue Dress, I don't
0: believe. No, but- Is that on the list at some point? It should be because Carl uh, Franklin's film is yeah. just fantastic. Yeah, truly
1: um uh, playing uh claudia's daughter is milacunas 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 <laughs> uh and she's you know i, I go back and forth on milacunas i in the, i think she comes from uh in terms of her um her her star rose on that 70s show uh, but uh, I think she's done a, an admirable job of of taking interesting roles. And this is this is one of those. Uh, I think the problems that I have with her in this film don't result from her portrayal of the character. Uh, it you know, there's script problems that she kind of bears the weight of. Uh, but I, I actually think she did a great job.
0: Yeah, I think she's fine in the film. I mean, I, I wasn't overly wowed by her, but I think I enjoyed her more than probably Kristen Stewart would have been in this film. Um, she had initially been offered the role, but turned down, uh, due to conflicts with the, uh, Twilight Saga, the new moon, which, uh, so Kristen didn't end up in this one. And to that end, I, uh, appreciate that Mila was, was not it. <laughs> <laughs> Ad-
1: admirable grace, you, you offer Mila there, Andy, that's terrific um uh we've we've mentioned uh, uh Evan Jones as Mars he's the he's the face i mean he's a thug and he ends it early but uh he's a face that you have seen you you absolutely have seen Evan Jones uh and you won't know
0: where you saw him. Yeah, but boy, is he a face that, that is recognizable. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's great here. He's great in these sorts of roles. And so it's fun to see him. You know, a face that you do recognize quite easily in this film that uh, isn't credited weirdly is Malcolm McDowell. He pops up in the very end of the film. And, um, yeah, no credit. And I couldn't figure out, uh, what would have been the case. I don't know if he didn't want his name on the film, if he just kind of popped in as a favor or if he didn't like it or what, but yeah, no credit. So kind of strange little uh, thing to not see him pop up. Cause he's like such a recognizable character.
1: Yeah. You wonder kind of where he is in his, uh, you know, in his career at this film, you know, when he's trying, when he's hitting this film, like I, I wish I knew where these uncredited things came from. This was not one of those films that seems to be, um, Couched in such controversy that he would want to distance himself from it somehow, and I, I found nothing that would indicate that
0: he was uncredited in Hidalgo when he played Major Davenport in the movie In Good Company, where he played the CEO of of uh, the company that uh, um, that our protagonists worked for, and then this film. Um, so that's it. I don't yeah. really know why in any of those cases. It's not like uh, you know. It's not like they're all the same. I mean, two of them were t- from two thousand four. This was one of his uh, many, many credited projects in 2010. So who knows what his reasoning was? Just no idea.
1: Tom Waits, his engineer, he's always entertaining. Was he blind too in this film?
0: (laughs) He may as well have been. He saw as well as Denzel did. (laughs) Their
1: their exchange at the beginning, uh, that again is going to be chalked up to Denzel couldn't be blind. That sequence... There's no way he's blind in that sequence. <laughs> right. They're both looking dutifully down at the contacts on that little battery thing. Uh, there's no way.
0: Yeah, it doesn't. I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. And then there's our fantastic cannibal couple Michael Gambon and Francis de La Tour, George and Martha. And they were great. <laughs> Uh,
1: they were great, mostly because of, it was just a very uh, subtle uh, pivot. I, I honestly, I didn't see it coming. I, I know that they had made mention of cannibalism earlier in the film, um, but I, I honestly did not see it coming. I thought they were just a good-natured couple at the end of the film.
0: Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, the My biggest problem with that in the story is, doesn't Eli say uh, something, or maybe Solara says, oh, do you see how much they're shaking? i I don't recall ever seeing either of those characters shaking. Like they had the shakes, whatever. You know, It's it's referenced to that. Anybody who's kind of got the shakes, oh, it's some thing that you get when you start kind of uh, cannibalizing and, and eating people. And I don't recall seeing George and Martha shaking at all. But one of them, I feel like, uh, whatever, or like Eli or Solara, I feel like one of them says something when they're all of a sudden like, oh, we got to get out of here. And so I didn't quite buy into that whole thing but it does turn into a fantastic scene and i love the fact that they're trying to keep them here so they can <laughs> eat them and weirdly it's like oh come out back and you know look at all the dead <laughs> our know. grave of all the people we've eaten <laughs> i know it's such a I strange know. little thing yeah
1: super strange uh and you know i i i think you <laughs> you can't ignore well first of all the the first thing i think of is george and martha the the happy hippo couple in the kids books You know George and Martha? (laughs) I don't know that. (laughs) I know that I should not think of them first, but there's the whole George and Martha and the pea soup, and uh, never mind. Um, But just know, spoiler, George doesn't like Martha's pea soup. And it turns out Martha doesn't like pea soup either. She just likes making it. So everything was fine with George and Martha. I'm glad. In the world of hippos,
0: everything turned out okay. Uh,
1: But how, how diabolical is it symbolically that George and Martha uh as a reference to our the the father and mother of the great united states uh are actually eating its children
0: yes right i know and uh, then then they also uh, uh, uh had reference that they had been um kind of deliberately pointing out the couple from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf as well, which I thought was mm-hmm. kind of an interesting reference. And which is funny because I don't think watching that film, I don't think I ever tied that Georgian Wa- Martha to nope. <laughs> the Washingtons. <laughs> nope. It's was like, oh, you're that is the same names. how funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. All right. Let's talk about getting it made, yes? Yeah, uh, you know, like I mentioned about being on the blacklist, once it was there, uh, that year, of course, Columbia and Warner Brothers um, uh, bought the rights to it and hired the Hughes brothers to direct it. Um, and uh, then they, I guess they had Anthony Peckham do some rewrites on it, although he ended up getting no uh, no screen credit for it. And then Denzel came on shortly after that, and, uh, and he suggested Gary Oldman, who came on a little bit after that. And uh, the next thing you know, they're making a movie. And uh, Don Burgess was our cinematographer on this film. I think a, a lot of the uh, the kudos to the look obviously go to uh, what he did here and just kind of the what the Hughes brothers wanted to do as far as kind of creating this world. But uh, Don Burgess, who we've talked about on the show before, boy, is there a fantastic, just this, this dead world look to the whole film.
1: Let's just say this film looks, uh, well, let me put it this way. 42 would have looked a lot different had it carried this. <laughs> that would have been a film. Right there. I want 42, but I want it to look like Book of Eli. How about that? Oh, or, that would For, be an interesting Forrest pitch. Gump. I want Forrest <laughs> Gump to look like this. Run, Forrest, run. <laughs> <laughs> it takes on a whole new thing. Oh, my oh dear so Don Burgess. Well done, Don Burgess. He's also behind uh, Spider-Man uh, and Cast Away. Uh, uh, very high contrast. Darks are very dark. Uh, and, uh, yeah, great, great looking film. Comments on production design. Gabe Buckley, Christi- Christopher Burry and more. art direction, Patrick Cassidy, set decoration.
0: Uh, you know, I don't have anything to say specifically other than, um, fantastic design here. I mean, it really does create this world. Same with hair, makeup, costumes. The whole team really came together to, uh, create a fully, uh, believable, uh, post-apocalyptic world. I think they did a great job uh, filming in New Mexico uh, all over the place. Clearly it was a uh, a sign of the tax incentive that they were able to uh, take advantage of filming out there. But um, yeah, I mean the whole team here does an amazing job of creating this, this place.
1: Yeah, no, totally. Um, you know, we uh, should also talk about the, the fight scenes, Jeff Amata, uh, stunt coordinator did a lot of the fight scene choreography uh and man does that guy got credits right uh 186 credits including one of my very favorite fight club uh he's that that's a guy who owns fights so really i mean absolutely see them on on display in this movie
0: uh yeah he's he's really uh, a solid solid uh person in the world of stunts just doing some amazing stuff and you know getting out there in film too I mean he does quite a bit I mean his 55 screen credits uh, obviously they're going to be in relation to um, the fight sequences but you know he just does a great job and and the stuff that he put together for this film we already mentioned how great it was but um, bringing into into it some Filipino um, Kali the the martial arts stuff I mean it's, it's just it looked so good everything. Yeah
1: looked really really good. Editing by Cindy Moyo I'm going to say moyo. You think it's moyo or malo?
0: I don't know. I, I kind of would go either way on this one. Not All right. Quite sure.
1: Well, she did a fine job. Cindy did. Uh, I I thought it was cut well. There were I didn't find any pacing issues that were uh, that felt like the result of of uh, uh, you know cutting, um, and uh, it it held together well and and uh, visually I, I think made great use of the of the stock they were creating out of uh, Burgess's camera.
0: I think when it comes to the editing, the thing that stands out for me is the sound editing and the sound mixing. Uh, Chris Jenkins and, and Frank A. Montano were the re-recording mixers, and Eric Norris and Stephen Williams were the sound designers and the supervising sound editors. I just constantly was amazed by the sound in this film, particularly the the fight sequences when the camera was moving and spinning around the action And, I mean, just sitting in my living room, uh, it was like all of the sounds kept spinning around with it. Like, they pinpointed it so perfectly that the surround mix just, I mean, it was a stunning, stunning example of how to do a great surround mix. This would probably be a great demo disc to have to show off a system if you uh, had a really great system. So uh, kudos to those guys for the work they did here.
1: Totally agree. Um, I, you know, I I feel like we, uh, speaking of sound, Uh, I I don't feel like we can talk about sound without talking about the sound track, the score. Actually, Atticus Ross, Leopold Ross, and Claudia Sarn. uh, You know, I I don't remember if... I don't remember when I fell in love with Atticus Ross's stuff, but uh, man, I, I adore this film's music. The opening sequence, again uh you know not to pile on but the 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 way they use the music in that opening sequence in conjunction with the sound and the visuals i think it's it's a perfect package uh you know just as the sound or as the music stops the arrow is released the you know cat is dead uh it is it, it's just perfect it's a perfect energetic high for me
0: it's great stuff um, this was actually the year of, that i kind of discovered Atticus Ross as a composer, I mean, you know, obviously he had been, um, uh, you know, in music long before, uh, long before this. But this was the year of the social network, which is the first film that I. I kind of recognized him as a composer. I mean, I saw Book of Eli that same year, but I just, I guess I didn't pinpoint him as the composer, but Social Network is really where it all clicked for me. And that's where I really started noticing what he was doing, uh, which is just always really interesting. Lots of just interesting stuff. But uh, interestingly, he started working with Alan Hughes um, a couple years before in 2008 when uh, Alan did a, a segment of the the um the uh, film, New York, I Love You, where they, you know, is a bunch of different segments in that particular film. And then he's gone on, uh, he did Broken City, another um, Alan Hughes film that uh, Alan did solo without Albert a few years later. So mm-hmm. um, they've kind of stuck uh, stuck with it. But uh, yeah, I completely agree with the music. Just great, great stuff here. And,
1: and you know, I mean, you put on Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, This, Patriot's Day, uh, just, just put all of those in a playlist and shuffle it and you've got some of the best like head down headphones on work music <laughs> that you get, you've ever built. It is, it, it's just great. I get more done when I'm listening to these soundtracks than any other music.
0: Yeah. Great, great stuff. So, how did it do an award season? Well, this wasn't a big Oscar sort of film. It was nominated for uh, several Saturn uh, Awards, which are the Sci-Fi Fantasy uh, Awards. It was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film and Best Actor. Unfortunately, both of those lost to Avatar. Um, and then it was nominated for Best Makeup, which lost to Star Trek. So, um, that was nice. That at least got some recognition, even if it did lose to um, the, the big boys. Um, and then the Black Reel Awards. It, it did win Best Director. Uh, for the, for Albert and Alan Hughes. And then it was nominated for Best Actor, uh, Best Score, and Best Film. All of them lost to a film called Night Catches Us, which I had never heard of. And I had to look up what is this film. It actually sounds like quite an interesting film. Um, and Anthony Mackie is in it. He won for Best Actor. And The Roots did the score, and they won for uh, for that. So, uh, But it looks like an interesting little film, so I'll have to check it out. Um, but uh, at least the Hughes brothers did win Best Director for that.
1: Uh, And what does that mean for uh, the box office?
0: Well, uh, you know, this big budget action film from uh, the Hughes brothers, uh, it ended up costing $80 million. So they had a a nice chunk of change to play with for this. That was about $88 million in today's money. Um, It wasn't a Michael Bay-sized budget, but still for them and uh, for this dystopian action thriller, it was a great budget to have. The movie uh, did open in the doldrums of January, uh, January 15th, 2010, opposite The Spy Next Door. Um, But that's not all. It opened a week after Avatar uh, kind of had its big debut, or a few weeks after Avatar Avatar had had its big debut. So really, there was no chance in hell that it was going to make it to the number one slot. Uh, That thing was just a behemoth at the box office. It did open at least to a a strong number two, though, so that's good. Movie did end up making 94.8 million at the domestic box office, which is about 104.3 million in today's dollars. And overseas, the movie made 64.5 million, or about almost 80 million in today's dollars, making it a grand total of 175.3 million dollars adjusted. Gives the movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of about 740,000, which is great for a film given the gift of January opening by its distributor.
1: I love that you actually place that the film opens. A week after Avatar as second in most interesting opens to, it opened opposite Jackie the Spy Next Door. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's just say Spy Next Door could have ended up at number two. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Dodged a bullet.
1: <laughs> Phew, oh, Andy, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com uh, slash the next reel, or better yet, just swipe over to the show notes on your podcast player of choice, and you will see a link for Flickchart. Just tap on that link. Tap on the link right there, and it'll take you right over to this movie on flickchart.com, and you can add it to your own list. And uh, let's see how
0: it does. All right. First up, we have The Book of Eli or Mad Max.
1: Well, that's an let's interesting one. say Mad opener. Max. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say Mad Max, dystopian
0: too. films. All right. Mad Max takes it. The Book of Eli, or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I'm going to say Book of Eli. Another another problematic film. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to say Baron Munchausen, but I feel like Book of Eli is actually a little bit more of an enjoyable watch, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'm going to pick that one. The Book of Eli, or What's Up, Doc? I'm going to say Book of Eli on this one. I'm going to say What's Up, Doc?
1: How hard?
0: Are you going to say it real hard? <laughs> <laughs> I think I am. Really? <laughs> I am, yeah. I just, I, I. the issues I have with the blindness. The, that was like, too much,
1: right? You can't let it that go? It was too
0: much. Yeah, no, no.
1: I feel like if I watch the movie and I put it in my head, he's not blind. He just happens to be able to read Braille. Then it's a better film.
0: <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> no
1: grand that. reveal at all. All right. Let's do it. Let's let's go to the races here. Let,
0: let's all do right, it. All right. One, One two, two, three. three. Paper. Paper. All right. Look at that. All right. The Book of Eli or Run, Lola, Run. Run, Lola, Run. Yeah. Run, Lola, Run.
1: Hands down.
0: The Book of Eli or Splash. You know I'm going to Splash. (laughs) Splash, please.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Oh, The Book of Eli or Gattaca. Really interesting sci-fi film.
1: Oh, I'm Gattaca on this one.
0: Yeah. I'm going to say Gattaca. The Book of Eli or The Godfather Part 3. Part 3.
1: Uh, I'm. I think I'm probably Book of Eli.
0: I'm probably The Godfather Part Three. Sounds like well, neither both of us are real hard. <laughs> oh yeah, both a little wishy washy. I, I, I could. I
1: could. I could wishy wash over to The Godfather just on the strength of the trilogy. Yeah. Um,
0: so it's got a great ending. Yeah, it certainly sure does. does. All right. All right. Uh, the Book of Eli or The Sandlot? I'm going to say The Sandlot. Yeah, I'll give you the Sandlot. The Book of Eli or the Host? Well, I think you know my love for
1: the Host. I sometimes I do. give it up too easily on the Host. I think I'm going to go for the Host this time around.
0: And I was going to go for the Book of Eli. All right, we're doing it. <laughs> All right, here, All here right. we go. One, one two, two, three. three. Scissors. Ah, oh, come on, man. <laughs> I figured it out on that uh, one. Ugh. God. Uh, ha, ha. All right. Well, that puts the Book of Eli at number 221 on our chart, which is a, a pretty good spot. 221 out of 295.
1: Yeah, it's a little low for me. A little bit low, uh, mostly because of my uh, uh, clearly unjustified losses. <laughs> so, And for it, that, it, it, I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is, uh, but if anything, I mean, I, you know, the I love this series, and I think the uh, you know we we both really rallied behind Menace to Society. We were a little bit split on uh, From Hell, but this film, I think there is so much going for this film, and and a, a real testament to uh, the brothers Hughes uh, as visual filmmakers. I I hope they figure something out. Uh, to come together and tell some more stories because um, uh, this uh, this speaks volumes. This is uh, this was a, a really fun film to watch in spite of its challenges.
0: No, and I agree. I mean, it really is a very enjoyable film. It's very easy to watch. Um, it is very interesting despite its issues, and it certainly is something that I would be happy to watch again. Um, and going back to the Hughes brothers. They are I, I wanna know kind of what's going on with them as filmmakers because after this they really haven't worked together. I know Alan, like I said, has uh had directed um Broken City a uh back in two thousand three and Albert, I believe, is is living over in uh Prague um and kind of doing his uh his huge epic uh, uh you know caveman movie that is uh, supposed to be coming out I think it's supposed to be coming out this year, the Salutrian. Um, so I'm I'm very curious to know, um, you know, what these guys are going to, uh, how they're going to continue moving forward, and are they going to down the road find a way to kind of bring it back together, or are they going to kind of keep things separate? Now, um, uh, I didn't see Broken City. I didn't hear much other than it's kind of a, a menace to society, but in the world of white police cops, <laughs> so. <laughs> Or cops and politicians, I think. So, yeah. um, so I'm curious about that one, and I'm definitely curious about the Salutrian. Um, but no matter what, I think they're really compelling filmmakers, and always worth uh, considering when they have a new film out there. What does this do for your Letterbox ranking? I, I ended up at a three star for this one.
1: Yeah,
0: I, 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 I think. I feel it, like it. Yeah, I feel like it could have gone higher if it w- weren't for uh, some of those issues that I had.
1: But. Yeah, I, you know, I came in at, at a solid three and a half, and I was feeling pretty good about that. Um, and, uh, as usual, you're contagious, so I, I'll give you three. Uh, we can't do quarter stars, right? So we'll, I'll, I'll stick with three and, and be happy with that. But, uh, but happy with that genuinely. Like, I really I enjoyed this film, and, and uh, uh, I'm like you. I'll, I'll watch it again for sure. Yeah, uh, definitely. Now, we are moving in a uh, very different direction with our next series. Andy, we're taking on a different director. Where do we go from here?
0: Yeah, very different director is right. We are going to be uh, really switching directors and jumping on with the much more naturalistic style <laughs> directings of Kelly Reichert. Uh, uh, she's a, a, a writer and director um, and also somebody who wears multiple hats. Um, and we're going to be talking about a few of her films, starting with, uh, not at the beginning of her career, um, but we're going to be starting with Wendy and Lucy from 2008. And then we'll be doing Meek's cutoff. And her most recent film from last year, Certain Women.
1: Outstanding. Uh, I I look forward to this conversation, if if anything, uh, because I love these hairpin turns that we take thematically. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, man. Is this one uh, not anything at all like Eli? Yeah. I guess it's a road movie. It's kind of a road movie. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. All right.
0: Uh, Until then, Andy, I think you know, I got to go to bed. All right, man. Well, I hear someone knocking at the door. I'm going to go, uh, invite them in uh, for supper.
1: Amazon Giveth,
0: Andy. As Amazon always doeth.
1: I've got a one star, Andy. And it's it's from Mm. Lynn, who saw this movie in September of 2015 and calls it a pathetic, violent movie. The book of Eli is, of course, the Bible, says Lynn. The only saving grace in the movie is Denzel Washington's acting. He is superb. This is post-apocalypse, when the atmosphere opened and everything on the surface burned, sort of. Eli is heading west for reasons unknown, except his claim of a message from God or an obsessive-compulsive disorder. The movie is mostly an excuse for gratuitous violence, a string of such scenes. He is carrying the book west. At one point, he encounters a somewhat educated thug who rules a small town and is looking for a copy of the Bible. He steals Eli's. Eli heads west. Turns out it's a Braille Bible, so our thug cannot read it. He remembers the Bible was a book of power, and figures that if he could get one, he could have that power. Poor sap. Well, Eli and female companion finally reach the West Coast and find a fortified and armed city on an island where they are attempting to restore civilization. He has the Bible memorized and dictates it. He then dies, and female companion picks up his gear and heads east. For reasons not quite clear. I was going to donate this movie to a book fair next month, but I have decided that it's too inane and violent, so I will destroy it. I do not understand why Denzel Washington made it. Sad. Sad i will destroy it (laughs) so you kind of have to get to the end of that one to to get the punchline she sort of buries the lead i was gonna donate it to a book fair but instead i will destroy it (laughs) wow i know right oh man boy i wonder if she
0: uh was finding the uh, the lost ET uh, <laughs> Atari game mine. <laughs> this is where you belong. And so
1: I will destroy it there. Oh, oh. Uh,
0: what's yours? Wow. <laughs> well, I I'm, I'm switching it up. I picked a different one. I'm, but it's a one star by Michael A. Jones who says, eh, not so good. Reminded me of Waterworld on land. Was not very entertained. This movie seemed like a cross between Waterworld and a bad Western. Would say tombstone, but cannot compare a classic to this one. The dialogue and storyline were a, left a lot to be desired. Found myself bored many times while watching, and the story had many holes, not worth renting.
1: Okay. I take offense to the Waterworld comparison. I think that's unfair. <laughs> that's, that is too far, man. To... <laughs> a too, far. too far. That's too far.
0: Oh, man. Oh, so funny.
1: Jeez. All right.
0: Thanks, Amazon. Yeah! Hold that thought just a sec. I have I have, I have a child in here again. My favorite I don't know, buddy. I think that if you can stop watching this because it's messing up my show, and mommy should have told you. Okay, just go go check on your Wii. Maybe play the Wii now.
1: No, I can't. It's still downloading. Whatever it's called.
0: Okay. Well, can you go read some books for a minute? <laughs> Go talk to mommy, okay? Have mommy help you. I'm recording my show right now, bud, okay? I can't watch any of my favorite I'm sorry, buddy. Go talk to mama. Careful. Uh, grumpy boy. (laughs) Hey, hold on real quick, Pete. What, buddy? You gotta stop coming here. Why don't you go talk to mama? This is the last time. Okay, what? Um, the Wii said it was done and now it's restarting it. It's fine. I told
1: her I'm never gonna get to play. Oh, you're gonna
0: get to play, okay? It'll just take a minute. I will come out. What I'd like you to do right now is go brush your teeth and get dressed and comb your hair. I'm eating. After you're done eating. You know what I got the other day, Pete? I'm going to name a series from season six, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations.
1: No, hold
0: on. Hold
1: on. No, it's my turn. Ah, damn. First up, disease films.
0: Uh, okay. Uh, well, there's The Omega Man and The Andromeda Strain. Um, oh, and Blindness. One more. One more. Um, oh, Children of Men? That's the one. Okay, how about It's Real Life, Jack? Oh, that's easy. Black Hawk Down, Seabiscuit. Betty Davis. Uh, uh, The Little Foxes. Um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Now Voyager. Okay, this one's easy.
1: The Godfather Trilogy. (laughs) Well, The Godfather. So good. Well, we've covered lots of great movies that started out as books.
0: Books like The Danish Girl, Certain Women. Howl's Moving Castle or The Black Stallion. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing
1: this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time.